In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Today's epistle talks about unity and the work that is necessary to maintain it. Quote, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Unity and peace are popular and sentimental topics, but they are extremely hard to achieve and maintain. It is easier to sing songs about unity or wax poetic about uh, us all being somehow one than it is actually to bring people together in an actually unified communion body and to maintain that unity over time. As Christians, we have to understand that unity for us in our revelation is a work of reconciliation and restoration. God is a unity. God is three persons who together are one. God created the world to reflect this unity, to reflect his, the order, the, the beauty, the peace that's part of his very nature. And Genesis tells us that the rebellion against God by angels and man destroyed that unity. This is a sort of Christianity 101. God made the world unified and good, and human sin uh, destroyed that unity and goodness. The Son of God became man, therefore, to restore the creation to union with God. This is a basic point, but it needs to be re-emphasized in our culture. Many Christians who ought to know better end up supporting schemes for unity and peace that are really contrary to the truths of the revelation. If the problem of disunity in the creation is sin, it follows that no answer that does not address the problem of sin will ever achieve the unity it seeks. Fallen humanity attempts to achieve a unity that ignores human sin. The Tower of Babel is the earliest recorded attempt. We will erect a monument to ourselves. By human labor, we will build a pathway to heaven that we may all be one. The end result was a confusion of language. And in fact, people were scattered all over the face of the earth. Pentecost is God's answer to Babel. God came down by means of the Spirit and made people of different languages to speak together the wonderful works of God. God made the many to be one. Of course, there is a need for temporary solutions in a fallen world, treaties, military alliances, court-ordered settlements, 
are often necessary to keep people from killing each other. But we must always know these are not the final answer. Ultimately, unity and peace can only be fully and finally achieved when the prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, is fully and finally answered. However, this is not an excuse to be content with the way things are. We are called to work, pray, and give for the spread of God's kingdom. We are called to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But notice in our epistle that unity is something we are to maintain, not create. Unity is God's gift to us. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have been restored to union with God, and we have been restored to union with each other in the communion of the saints. We must fight to maintain this unity and to expand this unity, to to bring others into it. We have a universal hope, but a local hope and personal vocation. Sometimes the quest for unity is presented as a policy decision. If we can establish the right plan and make everyone follow it, then all will be one. The biblical model works in the other direction. The biblical model is incarnation. God became man. God did not begin the work of reuniting the world with himself by issuing a policy statement. He began that work by entering into the creation. Unity began in a Bethlehem manger and spread outward from there. Jesus, by his ministry of calling people to repentance and faith, brought others into that unity. And his followers, in turn, went out to still call yet others. What about the complaint that the church itself is divided? The answer is the same. We can't solve the large picture policy problem. We can only work for unity in the places we actually have influence, in our own actual families, in our own actual churches, in the places we work, and in our own actual relationships. Debating how to reunite East and West, or trying to figure out how to undo the Reformation, never really promotes unity. However, being faithful Christians, who with labor, with long-suffering, with forbearance and love, work in the actual churches where they're present, in their actual families, in their actual friendships, when they work to promote unity, that does further the cause. And being a faithful Christian who interacts with Christians from other churches with truth and charity also promotes unity. There are certain foundations for unity, certain things we have to fight for if we want to maintain and spread the (laughs) unity that comes from God. 
The first foundation is truth. Our epistle says that there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. This truth is enshrined in the creeds. We are all one because we, present, we, we profess a common faith. We all face a common altar. We all say amen in common to the prayers of the liturgy. Heresy and false teaching undermine unity. Heresy results when one rejects God's revelation and says, I choose to believe my own doctrine. One cannot experience Trinitarian unity if one rejects the Trinity. This is why promoting unity sometimes involves contention. We must fight against false belief. Priests take a vow in ordination to, quote, be ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away from the church all strange and erroneous doctrine contrary to God's word. The idea that everyone can have his or her own truth, that unity is best achieved by letting each to have his or her own, is very popular and attractive in our time. But it doesn't work in any other activity, and it doesn't work in the church. It's false and undermines genuine biblical unity. Another foundation for unity is repentance. We must recognize and continue to confess that we are all sinners who are in the process of being saved. We are forgiven. We are being changed. We are unified in our common opposition to sin within ourselves. If a member of the church refuses to acknowledge his sin or continues to practice something that is clearly contrary to the revealed will of God, that undermines the unity of the church. Willful disobedience promotes disunity. Repentance also means that I will always be aware that my own sin is always a threat to unity. It means that whenever a dispute threatens unity, I will begin by asking, what is my role in that dispute? And what is my role in the solution? How have my faulty motives contributed to it? Recon reconciliation that promotes unity almost always involves mutual confession. <clears throat> Another foundation of unity is a common mission. We are all working towards the same thing. We all follow Christ, worship God. We all work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom through our various gifts. We gather together as a body to express our strong opinions about what direction we should go. But when we form a consensus and move forward, we all work together to make sure that that goal is accomplished, to do more together than each of us could do alone. Personal agendas and lack of commitment 
undermine unity. When someone brings into the body of Christ a hidden agenda or contrary motive, it undermines the unity of the church. When someone gossips or privately sows seeds of discord in the church, it undermines unity. When people lack a commitment to do their part as a member of the body of Christ, it undermines unity. When people do not live a life for prayer, are not faithful stewards, do not exercise their gifts, it undermines unity. That is to say, the non-committed undermine the army of God in the same way that uncommitted soldiers undermine a regular army. A final foundation for unity is simply putting up with each other, loving each other as we actually are. The great and attractive ideas of unity and peace most often fail not for some big disagreement over uh, uh, direction or policy, but simply because of petty animosities and personality differences that fester and become cancerous. Promoting unity means being willing to love the person in the church that I have the hardest time loving. It means putting up with them, suffering long with them, and desiring their good, knowing, of course, that someone thinks that way about each of us. Unity requires humility. Humility, like unity, is a divine attribute. It can only be developed by those who know God and who are in the process of being made whole by God. Genuine humility has nothing to prove and does not need the approval of others. It is able to serve, to take the lowest place, because it is confident of its gifts and standing with God. Thus, it is able to freely give itself for others. We work for the goal of unity and peace when each of us strives to, quote, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.